we have a little bit of a break in our regular uh, going through uh, the books of the Bible, and that gave us an opportunity to have a Mother's Day message. So today we'll actually speak about mothers, which we don't typically do. It seems like a good opportunity to. And uh, if you would open to the book of First Timothy, chapter 2. First Timothy, chapter 2. And the topic for today, or the title for today's message, could be The Power of a Mother, or perhaps The Honor of a Mother. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men... Pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence For Adam was formed first, and Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, and this is the verse that I'd like you to focus on for the next few minutes, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. This is a passage that's not preached on very often these days, for obvious reasons, it, it uh, lacks popularity. And I remember when I first read this passage, what uh, caught my attention was uh, verse 15, where it says that she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. I was a new Christian at the time, and I've learned that a person is saved not by works of righteousness, but, but by what the Lord Jesus did for them on the cross of Calvary. Right? And when we trust in him and what he did for us, that's how we're saved. So how come women are saved by having babies? It just didn't make sense to me. Now, some time has passed since then. I've read this passage for the first time, and I've learned a couple of important things. First of all, the word save doesn't apply only to being saved from your sins. Right? I can be saved from drowning. I can be saved from a sickness that I have. I can be saved from financial ruins. All of these, in all these cases, the word saved can apply equally well. Um, the other is that you need to look at the context if you want to understand what a word means in the Bible. And uh, in this context, we have Paul describing the roles of men and the roles of women in the church. And it might appear that men get the more honorable position in the church. Because it says here that it's the responsibility of men to uh, teach from the pulpit in these kind of mixed gatherings. Uh, it's the responsibility of men to stand up in public or mixed gatherings and pray to the Lord. And to us today, that seems as the more honorable position. And so a woman might be sitting there and saying, wait a second, this is wrong. (laughs) Why are men getting all the glory or all the honor? And that is when this verse comes in and it says, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. 
meaning it is an honor that is being saved. Right? So you, we could say this, that motherhood is the salvation of women's honor. Motherhood is the salvation of women's honor. And um, it's important uh, to, to consider when God uses the word saved, he really means it. Uh, we uh, will talk about, uh, about Eve in a little while. But Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They had a relationship with God. Everything was going well. And then they sinned against God and they fell. We call that the fall of man. They were put out of the Garden of Eden. And they were actually condemned to an eternity in hell after their body would die. Now it says that God saves us. What does that mean? Does that mean, well, we don't have to go to hell anymore? And, and that's enough. Or does it mean, well, we don't have to go to hell anymore and we can even go back into the Garden of Eden. But let's not expect things to be quite as good as they were there, right? I mean, come on, we messed up. So, you know, let's, let's, let's get as close as we can to our previous position and be satisfied with that. No, what does it say? God takes us up and he seats us in Christ in the heavenly places and pour upon us every spiritual gift in the heavenly places. We become children of God, a position far higher than Adam or Eve ever had. So when God uses the word salvation, he means it. So if motherhood is the salvation of women, God means that he is exalting their honor through motherhood. And it's right for us to honor mothers. Because of it. Uh, we're told in the Bible that God will give us rewards. I don't know why God gives us rewards. You think, you know, as sinners, we should be happy we're not thrown in hell. And yet the Bible says God gives us gifts, and if we use this gift for God, God will reward us. The fact that God saves the honors of, of women through motherhood means that in heaven he will be giving rewards for women, for how they were mothers, right? And um, I think, you know, today you might be sitting in the audience saying, no, well, you know, he goes up and he preaches in front of people and, you know, he'll, he'll have lots of rewards in heaven. It's very possible my wife will have more rewards in heaven than me for being a mother for our children. Um, today we don't appreciate the value of motherhood as we should. I have uh, many uh, co-workers who are female, and they'll have a, a, a baby, and uh, so they'll, they'll leave work for three months, and then they'll come back to work, and they'll leave the, their baby in the care of somebody else, some sort of a, a daycare. Or, and this is, this is, you know, the rule of the land almost. If I tell people that my wife is staying at home, you know, watching her kids, what? <laughs> You know, if I'll tell them she has a degree in optometry, what? What is she doing at home? People don't appreciate the value of it. And because of it, mothers are losing their eternal reward because God planned the, the position of motherhood to be honored. Right? That, is, that is so valued in the sight of God. Now, one of the, the reasons we don't appreciate the value of motherhood is because we don't appreciate the value of children. In this society. And this is not new. I'd like you to look at the passage in Mark chapter 10. We'll have it on the screen as well. Because there's a discrepancy in how we view children and in how God views children. Matthew, Mark chapter, sorry, Mark chapter 10, 
verse 13. Then they brought little children to him. Mothers were bringing their little children to Jesus that he might touch them. So in the Jewish culture, it's common if you have a, you know, a great religious leader or a prophet or someone who's clearly close to God and you have a child, you would bring your child to this person, he would bless them. And mothers would often seek that kind of blessing for their children. And so mothers recognizing Jesus as a great teacher or a prophet, or maybe they even recognized he was the Messiah and the Son of God, and they were bringing their children for Jesus to bless. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. So the disciples basically rebuked the, the mothers who were bringing their children to Jesus. And they said, get out of here. He has more important things to do. Right? He's, he's healing people, doing miracles, he's, you know, teaching grown-ups. Take your children away. It says, but Jesus, when he saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children Come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them, the children, up in his arms, and he laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. Jesus saw enough values in children. He stopped everything he was doing in order to take those children and to bless them. And... Uh, we have a connecting thought here of, of such is the kingdom of God. We look at children and we'll say, ah, they're not, what can this child do for me? Come on. This child needs me. I don't need the child. But uh, Jesus looked at children and he saw future citizens of the kingdom of God. He saw shakers and movers in the kingdom of God. People who will be serving God, who will be close to God for eternity. When he was looking at those children. There is a phrase we often use. It says, um, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. And uh, in my mind, it goes back to, say, the mother of you know, President Obama. You know, at some point, she was rocking the cradle, right? With Obama in it. Well, today, you know, he rules this country. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, has, has a dominating power in the world, has a lot of influence all over the world. So the, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. And I decided to look up that phrase. You know, if, if possible, I like to give credit where credit is due. I didn't come up with that, you know, line. So. And uh, it was neat to find there's a poem. There's actually a poem somebody wrote. Somebody named William Ross wrote a poem where this phrase is found. And uh, William Ross wasn't thinking of presidents. He was, he was thinking of children of God. He was thinking of, of uh, mothers leading their children to the Lord. Listen to this. Infancy's the tender fountain. Power may with beauty flow. Mothers first to guide the streamlets from them souls unresting grow. So he's describing a, a child as a, a tender fountain. And uh, the mothers are the first to be guiding that fountain, right? A baby is born, the mother is the first who will start guiding this child how to walk and how to live, right? They have that opportunity when the child is still tender, you know. We, as men, get to work with grown-ups. <laughs> you know, grown-ups are not very flexible. 
You know, they have an idea in their mind, and it's really hard to get it out. You get them as a little child, when they can still be steered. Grow on for the good or evil, sunshine streamed or evil hurled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. So there's an opportunity for good or for evil with the child that you're starting to raise. Woman, how divine your mission here upon our natal sod. Keep, oh keep the young heart open always to the breath of God. All true trophies of the ages are from mother love impearled for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. You have the destiny of eternal souls in your hand, mother, to guide them to God or away from God. So with this, my introduction is over, and uh, I'd like to take some time and look at some examples of mothers in the Bible. It's Mother's Day, we want to honor mothers There are some mothers (coughs) that deserve honoring in the Bible, but I want to add a couple of caveats, as we call them. Uh, The first one is I recognize, and the Bible recognizes, that not all women will be mothers. Okay, so if you're not a mother, it doesn't mean you somehow missed God's blessing and calling in life for you. It's possible to be blessed with God without without being a mother. God has multiple gifts. Motherhood is one of them. Singlehood can be another gift, to be able to dedicate yourself to God uh, and not be married. Another is, <clears throat> I, I'm hoping that you view these examples that I will share as sources of inspiration and not as a measuring stick. Because, uh, you know, if you were to, say, preach a sermon about men, and you'll use, like, the Apostle Paul and, you know, Samuel and other people, and you say, you know what, you know, how come you're not performing at this level? I would feel pretty bad here. <laughs> so, you know, when we take examples from the Bible, the witnesses, the, the people for us to perhaps imitate, but not to use as measuring stick. So I don't want you to walk away discouraged. You know, I'm not performing at the level these women are. It's okay, I'm not performing at the level either. <laughs> so, use it as a source of inspiration, not as a measuring stick. Okay, first example we'll look at is Eve. And uh, we'll look at uh, (coughs) a couple of verses in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, Eve is often given a bad rap in the scripture because, you know, she was the one who was deceived by the serpent. She took the forbidden fruit, she ate it and gave to her husband. Uh, we need to be careful not to be too harsh with Eve there. What Adam and Eve did is what we would have done in their place. And the Bible actually lays the most serious charge at Adam's feet, not at Eve's feet. He's the one ultimately responsible for the fall of man. 
But uh, people sometimes would, would ask you these strange questions that you'd have a hard time answering. Remember somebody once asked me, do you think Adam and Eve are going to heaven? And, uh, yeah. you know, it's a hard question to answer. You know, it doesn't specifically say anywhere that they're saved. And uh, I would say from this passage, it's pretty obvious that Eve was saved. Eve herself was saved. I don't know about Adam for sure. I think he was saved too, but I can't prove it. This passage is a pretty good proof text that Eve herself is in heaven right now. Um, The reason I say this is she is referring here to an event. When she says, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed, she is referring to another seed. Can anybody think of what seed she is referring to? Yeah, the seed of the woman, good. So there's a prophecy in the Bible, the very day that Adam and Eve sinned against God, and God says that out of the woman will come a seed that will crush the serpent's head. Now that serpent, which was being used by Satan, has just led for the fall of mankind, and, and, and Adam and Eve being thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And uh, it was a promise, the fact that seed would come out of a woman that would uh, crush the serpent's head was a promise that God would one day save mankind through a descendant that would come, come from Eve. And what this shows, when she is referring to that seed, says God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel whom Cain killed. It shows she is trusting in that promise. And uh, today we know if someone believes in Jesus and the fact that Jesus died for their sins, that they're going to heaven. That's what the Bible teaches us. In the Old Testament, Jesus hasn't come yet, so their faith can't be so clearly set. And the way you know they're saved is they're trusting in God's promises, in particular promises related to the coming of the Messiah. And that was a promise that the Messiah would come. And Eve laid hold of that promise. So we know if you're going to heaven, you will see Eve there. Now the other thing we learn from this verse is Eve was sensitive to the spiritual condition of her children. And uh, the reason we know it is she had two children, right? At least two sons. She had Abel and she had Cain. Well, Cain killed Abel. So she could have potentially said, well... I know that uh, Abel's not the seed, right? Because he's dead, so God can't use him to bring the Messiah. Well, why not Cain? Could Cain be the seed? Well, she could tell that Cain wasn't the seed, right? She was able to tell Cain was not a child of God. As much as she loved Cain, and as much as I'm sure she tried to teach Cain, as much as she taught Abel, she was able to discern that Cain was not right with God. And that's why she pointed to Seth and said, God has appointed another seed instead of Abel. And that causes you to think of the fact that uh, Eve was concerned of her children's spiritual condition. Right? She was in the Garden of Eden. She knew what it was like to be right with God. She saw how she and Adam fell from that position and now they were cast out of the garden. They were set apart from God. They were separated from God. But she knew God made a way for them to be restored back to him and she desperately wanted their children to know that way so that they could be right with God as well and be restored to be with God. And uh, so she was teaching her children. Adam, you know, he had his job, right? His job was to uh, 
try to scratch some living out of the land. That was his part of the curse. She was the one who got to stay at home with the children and she poured her heart into them, desiring them to be in heaven with her and with Adam, ideally, with God. So that's the, the first thing, example for women, uh, women, spiritual women. They desire their children to go to heaven and they pour their lives into their children to try to point them to God. Okay, next example we have is, uh, is Yochevet. Uh, also named Jochebed. I have a hard time with Jochebed, so I go with Yochebed, <laughs> which is the Hebrew, Hebrew pronunciation. We'll find that in the book of Hebrews. So it's appropriate we're using a Hebrew name, we see. <laughs> book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And verse 23. It says, By faith Moses when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So, obviously the name Yochebet or Jochebed is not here, uh, except it's, she was the mother of Moses, right? And it says that uh, you know, his parents, by faith, hid them for three months, not being afraid of the command of the king. What was the command of the king? The command of the king was every child... You shall cast, every male child born to a Hebrew woman was to be cast into the Nile and be killed, be put to death. And uh, she was, she was a, a slave in Egypt. She had a child. And when this child was born and he was a son, the commandment of the king was that that son must die. And uh, it says that she saw her child was beautiful. And I ask you know, which mother doesn't see her child as beautiful? And she was willing to sacrifice her own life for him. That's what it means, because <clears throat> by her refusing to kill her son, her life was forfeit. Right? If fellow uh, soldiers show up, it's not just going to be Moses that would die, it would probably be her as well that would be put to death for disobeying the king's command. And that's one of the wonderful... Uh, things we have in mothers is they're willing to sacrifice themselves for their children. <clears throat> I had an example, but I'm going to skip it for the sake of time. But, uh, you know, many a time I've seen, you know, my wife putting aside her illnesses, her discomforts for the sake of her children. Uh, we have here another thought regarding uh, Yochevet. And uh, we see that in Moses. It says, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. It doesn't say it in this passage, but I'm sure you're all familiar with the story. Uh, when Moses was three months old, his mother had to put him in an ark, and uh, put them in the river. And she had to do it for his own safety. 
because she could no longer hide Moses. The only way she could save Moses' life was put him in an ark. And uh, God, in his, his sovereignty, basically returned the child to her for a few years because Pharaoh's daughter saw him. She had pity on him in the ark, uh, in the river. And uh, Miriam shows up. She says, do you need somebody to take care of him? Uh, the daughter of Pharaoh says, sure, I need somebody. And, uh, you know, Miriam you know, acts as the uh, job recruiter and recruits her own mother for the job. So, so Moses' mother gets him back for a few years, but after those few years, he's going to Pharaoh's house, and he's going to be raised in, with, with Pharaoh's daughter. And you're thinking here of her, what would you do? You know, this is your son, right? And uh, you are one of God's people, granted a slave in this world, but you know there is an eternity in store, and the most important thing is for your child to be right with God and do God's will. But in a few years, he's going, and he's going to be in Pharaoh's daughter's house. Is that a godly house? That is a house full of the world and of idols. What are you going to do with your son? And she is able to train him in the few years she has so that when he becomes of age, he refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He rejects everything the world has to offer him. And he wants to be counted with the slaves, with God's people. And he's willing to accept the reproaches of Christ instead of everything this world has to offer him. That was the training of a mother for a young child. It says in the Bible, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Is that true? It's in the Bible. And you know, training children is not an easy job talking about sacrifice. Right? It's not an easy job. So that's one of the things that mothers give their children, the hours upon hours of training their children. Uh, the last person we'll look at in the scripture is Hannah. And... Uh, Hannah was, uh, she appears in, the, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1. She, she's really, she, she, she is the introduction to the book of Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, which are to some extent the introductions to the book of Kings. So she actually plays a pivotal role in the life of Israel. Her son becomes the last judge, the greatest judge, and uh, he restores Israel to, uh, to God and uh, and ushers the age of king. He anoints David as, as king. And uh, she was childless. And it says that she grieved uh, because of being child, childless, and she prays to God, and God grants her a child. And I, I was talking to one of the ladies earlier, I won't disclose the name, because it's something that us men don't appreciate, and that is how much women want to have a child. And uh, I, I don't understand it. <laughs> I'm a man, but uh, my aunt was uh, childless until she was maybe 40, 45. And uh, she spent a fortune and went through, you know, so many difficulties and pains to try to have a child. And so I believe it that women have this, you know, basic desire to have a child, which is God-given. And... Uh, Hannah wanted a child. She prayed for a child, and finally she receives a child. And what does she do with this child? 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 27. For this child I prayed, 
And the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. God gave her what she asked for. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshipped the Lord there. And uh, what Hannah did, which is absolutely staggering and amazing, is she raised her child for the sole purpose of serving God. And uh, when her child reached some young age, again, we don't know what it was, could have been maybe five or six, she brought him to the tabernacle, which was what they had before the temple, and she left him there to serve God. And, uh, and there he was, serving God. She went back home. And uh, I submit to you that that was an act of worship. She received him from God, and she felt that God was worthy of her training her son for the single purpose of serving him. <clears throat> so that is Hannah. And uh, I wanted to, in the few minutes I have left, look at one post-biblical uh, example. And uh, most of you know her or, or have heard of her. And that's Susanna Wesley. Uh, we, we've talked about these women and uh, mostly the impact about their kids, but they had an impact on the world. Each and every one of these women had an impact on the entire world through their children. Uh, Eve was the one who taught her children about God. Well, how do we know about God today? It was passed down. Every one of us who knows about God today, you know, of course, God comes and at separate times he gives additional revelation, but it started with Eve. And, uh, and Jochebed, she saved. Moses, well, you know, Moses becomes an author of five books in the Bible. Uh, Hannah, she offers a child to the Lord. And... Uh, you know, he, he becomes a major person in the scriptures that uh, Israel owes a lot to. And the same is true about Susanna Wesley. Uh, some of you may have heard of revivals. The word revival strikes a bell, if anybody. Well, there was a revival that was called the Great Awakening. It happened about uh, 200, 300 years ago. And uh, <clears throat> Susanna, a woman, played a major role in that great revival. Now, she didn't do it in person. She did it through her children. Her children were John Wesley and uh, Charles Wesley, and she had other children beside them. But those two men played critical roles in, uh, in that uh, revival. And uh, I have a couple of quotes here from Susanna Wesley that uh, kind of show a little bit her character and how her character and training passed to her children was used by God to work this great, great awakening that happened. happened. So the first one, uh, quote, seems to be a response to a question. So she wrote lots of letters, and these quotes are taken out of her letters. It seems to have been a response to a question about pleasure. You know, is pleasure okay? Is it okay for us to seek pleasure? And this was her standard. How would you judge the lawfulness or unlawfulness of pleasure? Use this rule. Whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sight of God, takes from you your thirst for spiritual things or increases the authority of your body or flesh over your mind, then that thing to you is evil. What she was saying is how should you choose whether it's okay to watch this program on TV 
or uh, play this computer game or, you know, read this book, does it bring you closer to God or not? And uh, in, in those days in England, as, as it perhaps is often today, people profess to be Christians, but it's very hard to see it from looking at their lives that they really are Christians. Well, Susanna was an exception for that. It's very clear in her life that she is putting God first. She is living the faith that God describes in the Bible. And uh, it was that that started the revival that her sons were involved with because they went to college, which was a seminary. Everybody was learning about God. Nobody was practicing it. And they started a holy club. And they said, we're going to practice what the Bible teaches. And uh, it was those who uh, thought you know, uh, less of them for doing it that actually came up with the name Methodist. These guys are Methodists. They're so methodical in applying the Bible to their lives. It would do us good to be methodical in applying the Bible to our lives. So that was one of the key. The other is uh, another, another quote we have from her, from another letter, is, I cannot but look upon every soul you leave under my charge as a talent committed to me under a trust. And what she means here is she felt the burden of souls, and this was mostly her children. She felt the burden of her children's souls, and she was concerned about them. And her children could see that. They could tell souls were important. Why? Because souls are important to my mother. So souls are important. And they went out outside of the church. At the time, you had the church services, and if you're interested in God, well, go to church. You hear, the, hear a sermon. But they saw all these people who were not going to church, and they were burdened for the souls of those people. And uh, those were the two keys of the revival. One is uh, wanting to be real about our faith, wanting to live out what the Bible says. Second one is burden for souls. These souls are precious to God. We have the everlasting gospel which says every person that believes in God's provision for them on the cross is translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And we have this message, and that's a burden, because there's people there that are going to hell because they don't know that. So, the power of a mother, Susanna Wesley was uh, partly responsible for a great revival that shook the world. We looked at these other women. We talked about the fact that uh, motherhood is the salvation of women as far as God's honor is concerned. And just a final thought, because we're not all mothers. <laughs> and that is that uh, God gives each and every one of us the opportunity to honor him with what he has given us. Jesus one day was sitting in the treasury at the temple and he saw many people bring much and put it into the treasury. And then there was one poor widow who came and she dropped in two pennies or some very small amount of money. And Jesus says, she has given more than they all. Because they gave out of their abundance, she gave everything she had to God. So it doesn't matter if you... It doesn't matter whether you are a mother or not. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're rich. 
or if you're poor, you can honor God with what he has given to you. And God will look upon that and honor you for it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you that you looked upon us as uh, sinners and uh, felt that we were worthy of that ultimate sacrifice of shedding your blood on the cross for our sins. And I pray here, Lord, for anybody who doesn't know you, doesn't know that that is what you have done for them, that you might reveal yourself to them and what it is you've done to them. We thank you, Lord, for uh, mothers and the, uh, the sweat and uh, the tears that they have uh, poured into uh, raising their children. And we know you see that, Lord, and you honor that and you appreciate it. We pray as uh, we continue to honor them today that you might be glorified in it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.